Welcome to the Vandy Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Lee. Our guest today, David Seifert of D1 Baseball. David and I will talk about Vanderbilt and the upcoming draft, the potential changes with the college baseball calendar, whether Major League Baseball will play or not, and how that could affect things, all sorts of baseball-related topics. I think you will enjoy this show. This episode is presented by The Well Coffee House, a Nashville-area coffee house that provides fresh roast coffee, along with house-made pastries, breakfast and lunch offerings. There are four locations to serve you in the Nashville area. Those are Brentwood, Green Hills, Downtown, and Bellevue. More information can be found at wellcoffeehouse.org, The Well Coffee House, where coffee changes lives. We thank our co-presenting sponsor, Wellspire, Nashville's Learning and Development Center, located in the Gulch. Today's news presented by Sutherland and Belk, a family-owned injury law firm. If you or a loved one has been hurt in any type of accident, call Taylor or Russell at 615-846 6200 see what your rights are and if they can help well some very sad news Osiah Lewis died this week he is the former Vanderbilt football assistant he was last a senior analyst for the football team had been struggling and battling cancer for several years now he was 57 so our condolences to Osiah Lewis his family and to Vanderbilt football the guest line is presented by our friends at Bowling Branch, started by Vanderbilt graduates Scott and Missy Tannen. I had no clue what I was missing until I got Bowling Branch sheets. They are fair trade certified, meaning they are made under safe conditions by men and women treated and paid fairly. Try them free for a month. You can return them, but you won't want to. Once you get the sheets, try the mattress. That was voted the best mattress of 2018. Go to BowlingBranch.com. That is spelled B-O-L-L. Enter the promo code VANDY and get $50 off your first set of sheets. Dave Seifert joins us now. He is the director of college scouting at D1 Baseball and the Prep Baseball Report. Dave has had a tremendous career in baseball. He has pitched at Illinois. He is the former Phillies cross-checker. He has coached at the University of Evansville. So this guy knows the game backwards, forwards, and sideways. Dave, thank you for joining us today. I hope you are doing well. Yeah, thank you. Great, Great to be here and talk some baseball. We have a ton of ground to cover, and I think we will get into all of it by the time the podcast is done. We have the draft is one thing we will talk about. We will probably start the podcast with that. We will get into the college baseball proposals with changes to the season timeline. But let's start with the draft. First of all, it is a five-round draft. Some money is going to be deferred. There is talk that organizations may not pay full slot amounts in some cases. And we have the backdrop of who knows if there will be a season, when it will start, what that will look like. We have the minor league craziness. I think all these things intersect at one point. Anyway, the draft is the 10th to the 11th of June. With all that as a backdrop, what kinds of things do do you think we will see in the draft next week? I think the biggest thing we're see is uh, teams are going to go for the knowns over the unknowns. So, for example, the high school players that had zero spring at bats, you know, the kids like uh, there's a really good shortstop, Howard from uh, Chicago. Uh, he's in the prep baseball report top 10 overall. I think he may fall because the question was about his bat, um, and we didn't see anything in the spring from him, not, not, you know, not his own fault. 
but to my point is I think you're going to see teams go with a safe route. They're going to see the guys that have built the resume uh, more so than just <clears throat> the four weeks of the college season, um, things like that nature. So I think they're going to go for the known uh, rather than the unknown and the excitement and uh, uh, things like that. I would think that in a draft like this, there's only going to be 161 players. The drop-off to free agency in what – or not free agency, but undrafted players and what you can pay them is 300 thousand dollars to 25000 I would think with such limited resources that the teams are going to be careful about who they pick and make sure that if they take a guy – that they're able to sign him, but you also hear some talk of teams not being willing to pay full slot, things like that. What do you think the possibility is that a lot of teams go on the cheap in this draft? What does that mean? What players maybe drop out of the draft entirely for those reasons? Well, we've already seen three high school kids pull their name out of the draft. Um, so I think, as the day approaches, I know it's June 3rd, got a week to go here, but I think you're going to see more high school guys do that because the CBA says you cannot pre-negotiate until until you're actually selected, but everybody in baseball knows that it goes on. So I think right now the agents for those top players are searching around for their best deal. Teams are kind of finalizing their strategy, how they want to approach it. But I do think in the next week we're going to have another – handful of uh high school preps just pull their name uh out of the draft um you know and with with that said i don't see teams going on the cheap i I really do see teams spending their full allotment of their bonus it's only five rounds um i hate to say the you know the money is less than previous years obviously with the less rounds but i just i don't think teams are going on the cheap i think they're going to negotiate as usual um if they don't put pay full slot in the third that means you're just going to spend it in the fourth or the fifth, uh, because it still works the same way where you have your aggregate bonus pool and you just draw off that pool. Let's talk about some Vanderbilt players. Let's start with the top of the draft. The talk is about the Tigers and whether they take Austin Martin or Spencer Torkelson. The cons- well, I wouldn't say the consensus, but the majority of people think it'll be Torkelson. What do you think the Tigers would do? What would you do if you were the Tigers? I would, yeah, if I'm the Tigers, I'm taking Torkelson. I realize he's a first baseman. I realize he hits right-handed. I realize first baseman in the first round over the history of the draft haven't performed that well. But at the end of the day, Torkelson's the best player. He's got the most sure bat. Um, he may not end up being the best player because you know most of the time that's just how it goes. The best player is somewhere else in the draft, not 1-1. But right now going into it, he is the lowest risk, safest hitter. He should hit. He's always hit. Um, so if, if I'm the Tigers, he's, he's a slam dunk at 1-1. Did Austin Martin hurt himself at all with the spring? There was the hamstring injury. I wouldn't think that would be a big factor. But there was some talk, and I didn't get to see this because they were out on the West Coast and I, I wasn't out there. But I guess about him maybe getting the yips a little bit and throws from third and just even just in infield practice and things like that. And that may be his cast – some doubts about his ability to play on the left side of the the infield. Were there anything or any things like that, that Austin Martin did this spring that, or this winter, I guess, to be more accurate, that hurt his draft value? 
I was out west for that first series for the MLB Force, um, and so I saw a couple of the, you know, yips, what have, whatever you want to call it. I don't think it was a yips. I just think it was getting his, getting comfortable over there. Um, I know he's played there a lot, but early season, whatever it might be, just had to work it out. But then he got shifted to center field, as you know, and didn't have a chance to go back there to, you know, to, to work it out um, in such a short season. So I don't think he did anything to hurt himself. I think Torkelson just really stepped up. And I think the other name is Asa Lacey. He obviously really stepped up in those four weeks too. Um, so I don't want to say both of those past Martin, but Martin, he's a sure thing too. I mean, he's, he, he can hit, he's always hit. Um, I think what it did is got scouts to see him play center field with, within the past, they were just speculating he can move out there. You know, they're speculating if he's going to play shortstop this spring, whether it'd be best at second base. I just think that kind of added to his versatility uh, by going out to center field. And I just, I really disregard the yips because it was what, two weeks um, essentially in his career um, that it didn't go that well for him. So I just kind of throw that out. Well, and we also saw that from him last year. He did not perform well the first few weeks at third base, and then he turned into a gold glove winner at third and fielded tremendously well. So I like your answer. Maybe that's our better explanation for it. What I want to ask you about Austin Martin, though, David, is the power, because that's kind of the tool that he's lacking, I guess, in the eyes of most scouts. But at the end of last year, he really came on. He got two home runs against Louisville in the College World Series. Now, he didn't crush those, but that's also not an easy park to get him out of. He got one or two against Duke in the Super Regional. He hit, I think, maybe might have been to his last game or one of his last games at Vanderbilt. So you've started to see that dimension from him. I know that and at the MLB level are two different things, but how do you see the power tool for Austin Martin? I don't think it's going to be big, huge power, but I do like the power potential because, I mean, he has what you're looking for. You look for hit ability first, and then you, you look at the athlete, and then you project the power. And for him, he's all kinds of a good hitter. He's all kinds of an athlete, and I think that's just going to progress over time. You don't, you don't go and look for power, then hit. You look for hit, then power. He's going to get bigger and stronger. He's going to find his power. He's going to adjust, he's going to adjust his launch angle. I know it's a, a big word these days. Um, he's going to go from a line drive hitter to getting a little more lift on the ball. And, uh, again, I don't think he's going to be a 30 home run slugger, but to say he's going to hit 20 home runs a year uh, in the big leagues, I don't think that's a stretch, and that's certainly enough power if he's a center fielder. Uh, if he's a second baseman. So I, I don't see any problem with Austin Martin getting to his power because he's such a good hitter. I have struggled to cop him to any major league players. I've grown up watching major league baseball my whole life, seen thousands of players. I bet I've watched Austin play a hundred games. He catches so much barrel. So consistently you got the positional versatility. I still struggle with knowing who to comp him to, because I don't think I've ever seen anyone like him. What's your best major league comp for Austin Martin? You know, I've struggled to find a good one too. The one I've heard is Ian Kinsler. Um, I'm not, you know, I didn't make that one up, so I don't want to take credit for it, but I think that's probably the most popular comp out there. Yeah, that's as good as I've got. Um, I've thought of maybe Tony Phillips just because of the versatility, but I, I don't know that that's a great comp either, but Oh, I like that. I actually probably like that more than Ian Kinzer. That's a, that's a really good one. Yeah, it probably probably more power than Tony had, I guess. But you know, Tony just played all over the diamond and it, it was such a good hitter. Yeah, no, I, I actually 
uh, I worked for the Oakland A's when Tony Phillips was in Oakland A. I worked in the front office at, at that time, and uh, I do remember Tony really well. You're exactly right. That's a really good one. Let's talk Jake Eater. Everybody, I believe, has Eater getting picked in this draft. You saw him as a borderline first rounder, or I think the industry did, coming into the year. The two or three starts he had, he didn't help himself. He just couldn't find control and command of pitches. Uh, just didn't really take that step from last year where I thought he was really effective out of the pen. At the end of the year, of course, he got the last outs against Michigan and, and got a long save in that one. But where do you think Eater goes? What's your take on him at this point? We have Eater. I have Eater probably in the early third round, late second round. I think he's in a group of pitchers like Drohan from Florida State. Um, kind of, again, you know, end of two, early three. I'm with you too. I think I had him late in the first round, and that was on top of the outing. I saw him in the Cape Cod League last summer. Uh, in the Cape Cod League last summer, he was better than the outing in Arizona, but neither time was it was it a first or second rounder. I just kind of went with the uh, industry on the uh, first round billing in the preseason, and you know we adjusted him accordingly based on we, what we saw. But if he gets that curveball consistently spinning, he's able to locate his fastball in and out. I mean, and he's, you know, he's six, four, he's long, his arm works. I mean, he's got a lot of really, really good things to like. He just has to put it all together. Um, you know, and the thing about a first rounder is, is first rounders are not only talented uh, with tools, but they, they've also performed. And I think that's where Eater comes up a little short is just the, per- the consistent performance at this point. The five-round draft has really changed a lot of things because I think you would have seen Mason Hickman, Tyler Brown, Hugh Fisher, Ethan Smith all go pro. Now you see Brown around 100 by some people. You see him not drafted maybe by other people in terms of whether they rank him. Fisher, I think, is right on that edge of being drafted or not drafted. Mason Hickman also, although I think lately I've seen Mason more out of that top 161 than in it. And then Ethan Smith, the guy, I think it's closer to 200. But organizations make these picks. It's not a consensus of rankings. What do you see happening with those four kids? I, I like all those four, actually. But uh, my favorite is Mason Hickman. Uh, I, just, he, I saw him in Arizona. I've seen, I've seen him in the past, too. I think I saw him last spring against Florida when uh, Vandy hosted Florida. Really, really like Hickman. He reminded me of Kyle Hendricks with the Cubs the first time I saw him. You know, he's not going to overpower the fastball, but the fastball plays up because he can locate his curveball. He can repeat his breaking pitch to both sides of the plate, pitch after pitch. Um, and he also reminds me of uh, Michael Byrne. Remember him from Florida uh, two yes. years ago? Yeah. Now, now Byrne, Byrne had the better changeup. Hickman has the better breaking ball. But at the end of the day, uh, Byrne, I think Byrne was drafted after the tenth round, but I think he got like fourth, fifth round money. And I just just think if I'm a if I'm a team drafting and I want a sure thing, I know what I'm getting. I'm taking Hickman. I really like Mason Hickman. Again, that's just my personal opinion. We have him ranked 84th out of the college crop, uh, which puts him in the fourth, fifth round. So I really like Mason Hickman. Um, Ethan Smith, honestly, I saw him one time. It was last fall at Vandy when uh, he hosted Michigan um, in the David Williams Classic. He was he was pretty good that day. Uh, he looks more reliever-ish, doesn't have the big track record like a Hickman, you know, starting in the SEC. So he may fall outside of five. And tell me if I'm wrong, though, he was only a sophomore eligible anyway, so he's Correct. You know, back as 
yeah, I mean, he's back. He has three years of eligibility. So for him, I'm, I'm sure the money would just have to be perfect. So I'm not sure where his signability is at, but I would think it's a little bit higher than, you know, just your average, you know, than you just your average college junior or whatever we want to call him right now. Cause he's really, I don't know what you call a junior right now. Um, and Hugh Fisher, I haven't seen him for a while, but I mean, he's big and left handed and throws it up, up in the upper nineties. Uh, the thing about Hugh is, you know, he had the Tommy John surgery and he's not going to miss anything if he goes pro. And I know we're going to get into the pro season, the minor league season later, but he's not really missing anything. So if he did sign, he's going to be kind of like a JT Ginn from Mississippi state. If he does sign great, he just goes into pro ball and rehab. They take over his rehab and he, he's, he's ready to go next spring. So uh, I think his advantage his advantage to stay at Vandy, I'm sure, has some a lot of positives, and his his advantage to going to Pro Bowl right now has a lot of positives too. So, um, and then I'm sorry, who was? Oh, and then uh, Tyler, Tyler Brown. Brown is yeah. kind of yeah. Tyler Brown's kind of the wild card here because I know back in April he announced he was returning to Vandy. Um, you know, I saw the, I saw the Instagram. I've I read the stories, so I'm not really sure that might be why he fell off. You know, the the industry's top. 200 list or top 160 list or whatever you want to call it. Uh, but I mean, at the end of the day, Brown's got a plus th- or better fastball. He's a plus slider. He's big and strong. I mean, he, he fits right in the back of a bullpen right away. He can move quick. And there's a lot of things to love with Tyler Brown. I know was first two weekends. I know his first weekend in Arizona was not real good at all. Um, but then he pitched better after that. Um, you know, so again, he's just a little slow out of the gates. I hate to say he pitched himself out of the third round, which is probably, as good as a college reliever can do these days, I think that's kind of the ceiling. Late two, early three is just kind of with college relievers. There's a lot out there. So he's in for the draft. I wouldn't expect him to fall past the fourth round, maybe in late three, because he is that type of talent. But I think the thing that clubs need to get uh, squared away is: is he does he want to play pro ball or does he want to go back to Vanderbilt? Well, and the thing I wonder about him was does his abbreviated 2020 season cloud the picture because look Tyler Brown in 2019 you don't see many relievers that have as good a season as he did and it wasn't just the saves and things like that but it's the fact that he could go two and three innings and be darn near perfect in those you know there were times he got hit I wonder if sign stealing might have been involved in that particularly when he got roughed up by Arkansas because it just didn't look anything like the Tyler Brown we saw the rest of the year but the issue with him in the spring David was that even when the box score line looked good he didn't look like Tyler Brown we saw last year where it's you know 0-1 0-2 and then maybe one, two, see you later after that. He didn't get ahead of hitters. He was very hittable at times when he caught too much plate. There was just enough in those eight or nine appearances where, look, I'm going to bet on Tyler Brown probably nine times out of ten, but there was enough doubt over what I saw. And again, maybe it's just it's cold weather. Sometimes it takes some guys a little longer to get comfortable, but there was enough there with that sample size that was at odds with what I saw of the whole picture last year that made me wonder just a little bit about him. Yeah, I think, and again, I think uh, turning back, I think you go with a guy's resume, his freshman, sophomore year, and, you know, whatever he did in the summer, 
And I know he didn't. Tyler didn't have the best summer with uh, the USA CNT. Maybe he was just a little bit tired then, you know, obviously because of the, the CWS run. And then maybe he just didn't pump it up that opening weekend. But after the opening weekend this year, I mean, I'm just going based on numbers and what I saw. It did look like he turned it around a little bit, uh, heading, you know, which head into what would have been opening weekend of the SEC. So it's not like he had a terrible year in 2020. He just he just didn't. Uh, tune it up in time opening weekend and just kind of hit him in the face. And then he recovered a little bit, but uh, for him, as long as he's healthy and I'm not trying to imply anything at all, um, as long as he's healthy, I mean, he's a force. He's got the plus slider. He throws mid mid nineties. I mean, there's a lot to like. Yeah. And the command, I mean, the strikeout to walk ratio, and this is the same for Hickman too. They're just at levels that you just don't see in college. Right. Yeah. Nine walks and what nine walks and 50 innings last year, something crazy like that. Yeah. That's, Pretty special. Okay, you're more tuned in to the college guys, but you talk to scouts, you see some films, you read scouting reports. Vanderbilt's got three high school kids that everybody thinks are going to be drafted. Those are Robert Hassel and Pete Crow Armstrong and Enrique Bradfield. Any thoughts in particular on those three kids and whether they end up at Vandy or for some reason, maybe slip through, which I don't expect, and end up on campus. But, boy, it would be a bonus if either of those or any of those three guys did. I'm more familiar with Hassel and PCA. Um, so with Enrique, I really couldn't really lend anything for you. Um, I know Hassel and Pico Armstrong, they're both, you know, mid-first rounders. So if that's, an, you know, if that's what it takes to sign them, then uh, – I mean, it's hard to pass up mid-first-round money. I mean, you're talking life-changing money is different from everybody. I get that. It's different for, you know, each person. But uh, mid-first-round money, for example, is about $4 million, $3.5 to $4 million. So, um, you know, if that's suitable for them, I would expect them to to be drafted where they where they belong in the draft mid-first-round and, and sign. Um, other, otherwise, um, you know, Vanny's got a, another fabulous recruiting class, even if you get one of those three or two of those three. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, great talent would, would set them up for a long, long time uh, in the middle of their lineup. I talked to someone in the scouting community last week. The thought was that there might be a run on college arms in the mid-teens there, and maybe some of the high school bats would fall into the 20s. Well, Hassel and, and I think outfield bats in particular, Hassel and Crow Armstrong would, would be – those guys, but man, with Hassel, I just haven't seen anything that indicates he's going to drop that far. Have you? No, I haven't either. We I, we had a mock draft about two weeks ago, and I had, I had Hassel going seventeenth overall Red Sox, and so uh, you know that's that's kind of where we had him. I don't think that's changed. You know, both those guys have such a long resume. Again, just back to the whole resume. Pico Armstrong's been part of the USA. 18U, 17U, 16U, what you name it, for forever. Guys have numerous looks at him. Guys are very comfortable uh, with him. So I don't think his value changes just because he didn't have a, a spring season. David, I'd like to switch topics and get into the college baseball calendar, if that's cool with you. Yeah, certainly. All right, we've got some questions from our mailbag on that. Our mailbag is sponsored by Vanderbilt fan Josh Minton, an independent insurance agent operating out of Brentwood. 
Josh can take care of all your insurance needs. Call him today at 615-933-1979. Email him at josh at hqinsurance.com. Follow him on Twitter at joshuamintonhq or facebook.com forward slash jdmintonhq. He's my insurance agent. Give him a try. Tell him you heard about it here. Okay, HMHS says, what do you think of the proposed changes to the college baseball season that would push back the start of the regular season as well as when the College World Series is held? I personally love it. I personally love the, the model. Um, I think Eric Backich uh, is the main proponent behind it. Love it. Make it a summer sport. Right now it's really a winter sport competing with March Madness. If you really want to boost college baseball to the next level and, and make it more of a money makers for what? Now, I'm not saying we have to have college sports to make money. Obviously college sports are in, in in place for many, many, many other reasons, more important reasons. But if we want to have more programs that can float on their own dime, um, I think it's a no-brainer to make it a more of a late spring summer sport where you don't have the competition with men's basketball, where you play in better weather, you can move the seat the season back. You can get a lot of northern type teams uh, to save on their travel budget because now they don't have to travel south the first four, five, six weeks of their season. So I think every piece of it makes sense, uh, especially the academic side where these kids aren't going to be traveling their entire spring semester, entire second semester or third or fourth quarter or whatever your school attends. Um, I just think it makes too much sense not to uh, pursue it even more, maybe not take every single part of it, but I think it really needs to be strongly considered, strongly talked about and, and definitely adjusted moving forward. Yeah, I would love to see the changes going through as have been proposed. It was a little sidebar on your site. This is what the calendar could look like. The season beginning around March 18th, June 22 to 22nd is when the conference tournament, I think, would start or be held. July 1st to 4th was when regionals would be played, 8th to 10th Super Regionals, College World Series starting around the 15th, and then the title series around the 23rd to the 25th. I think that you, in terms of college sports, have a captive audience. You push that out where you're not competing with college basketball anymore as well. The other thing, and I hadn't thought about this till just now, but with minor league baseball shrinking by around 40 teams and a lot of those being, I'm sure, in smaller communities, I do wonder if college baseball has got a shot in some smaller towns where there's not much else to do to maybe pick up some of those fans that no longer have a park to go to on weeknights or weekends. I, I do wonder if that is an opportunity where college baseball could absorb some of the fans that the minors are losing, especially in some smaller towns. I would totally agree with that. That's a, that's a, it's a great thought. Um, I think minor league baseball will lose those 40 clubs in those towns, but I think those players and clubs, so to speak, will just be reassigned to their complex, whether it's in Arizona or Florida. So I don't think pro baseball is going to lose players um, or minor league players, but I do think those towns, like you pointed out, they are going to lose teams um, like Morgantown, West Virginia. Now that becomes a college baseball crazy town um, instead of, you know, sharing with, with the, with the pro team. And there's many other examples in the Appy league or the New York Penn league, or, you know, whatever part of the country you want to go to. So that's, that's a great thought. And by moving a lot of the games to better weather, that's just going to enable colleges just to have much better crowds. I can really just speak to my experience at Illinois 
and places I go in the spring. Now I go South early. I want to go in good weather, just to scout. You don't want to scout players in bad weather. You really don't want to watch them in bad weather because when a kid, when it's 35 degrees out, you're not seeing that true player. Um, so just as a fan, I mean, we rather walk 85 degrees or go when it's 35 degrees and have your park on and try to stand, try to dodge the wind. You know, I mean, there's, there's no, you're not going to take your kids to that ball game either. So no doubt. I'm wondering your opinion on this because you played in the Big Ten, but I see that league over the last decade, and I guess Indiana started it uh, with Kyle Schwarber and the run it made to the College World Series. You saw Illinois that one year host a Super Regional, and Vanderbilt beat Illinois in that, but I think that piqued some interest there. That's a program that's had some success. You've seen Minnesota have a lot of nice pockets of success. You saw Michigan's run last year and I was in Omaha. I could not believe how Mich- how many Michigan fans were out there. Seems to me like the big 10 is on the verge of really with what its programs have done and, and seeing the fans get interested, really spiking interest in college baseball in that conference. I don't think that any conference would benefit any more than the big 10 by this change, uh, Yes, with what's going on, what are your thoughts on what would that do for the Big Ten if this calendar goes through the way that Eric Backich and some others are pushing for it to? Yeah, I agree. It would, it would probably affect the Big Ten the most. I think over the last decade, uh, the Big Ten network, just the emergence and the, the creation of that has really pumped a lot of money into those schools' athletic part departments, and it's been shared with the baseball. I mean, you see Minnesota new facilities, Indiana got a new facility. Um, um, Michigan upgraded theirs. Northwestern, I think, well, they upgraded theirs, but it's like a new facility. So, I mean, that Purdue, so on and on down the line, they've taken that money and upgraded the facilities, which allows you to attract better players, better players, better records, you know, better postseason. So, um, yeah, for sure, definitely the Big Ten stands probably to benefit the most. But I think in general, all of college baseball stands to benefit the most because now instead of, uh, let's say, just the SEC having three of the eight teams in Omaha or four of the eight teams in Omaha, there's more balance because these teams have all better players. They can practice outside more. It's, it's more of a level playing field. And I think that's just going to draw interest from coast to coast, top to bottom um, of college baseball and just let it grow, let it boom. Five Star Door wants to know if the new model for college baseball is adopted, how will that impact recruiting? It's going to be tough for the teams that are in the postseason, that's for sure, because if you go through the summer, uh, you know, like you had mentioned, like the D1 model is the College World Series starts mid-July and then the title game is the end of July. That's the peak recruiting season, June and July, and that's not the peak recruiting season for your current class or that class that's going to enter as, as, as freshmen that, that coming fall. Unfortunately, that's like the peak season to getting looks at eighth graders and freshmen in high school. Um, but no matter, it's going to be a big disadvantage to those clubs that are in the playoffs, um, you know, that need a deep postseason run. Um, but I think there can be something adjusted to help that out too, as far as maybe their volunteer coach can uh, go out and recruit off campus. Uh, there's got to be some adjustments that can be made to help them. But yeah, it certainly is going to affect recruiting for the, uh, for the Omaha uh the, re- the the teams that appear frequently in Omaha. 
Well, and the obvious follow-up question of that, too, is what does that do to the Cape and the other summer leagues? Well, I think there's going to be enough good players. Uh, maybe it brings down the quality of the Cape a little bit, but there's just enough good players all the way around. You're still going to have competitive competitive Cape, competitive Northwoods League. There's still plenty of players to go around, good players. Well, obviously we don't know – enough about what's going to happen with the draft and how it affects college baseball next year because obviously we don't know who's going pro and who's not and then from there you have an effect of okay well this guy didn't get drafted or did get drafted that affects roster sizes and decisions for different programs which affects it elsewhere and there's a domino effect on down the line so with that said do you have any kind of idea of what teams are going to be impacted the most, whether specific programs or types of programs, by the ramifications of everything that's happened with the draft and the allowance of seniors to come back next year? Well, I think you're seeing a lot of mid-major teams benefit, like good ones, like the Wright, Wright State is probably a prime example. I think they had six seniors, and I think all six are going to have indicated that they're going to come back. So I think you're going to see a lot of those mid-major the better ones uh, and, um, but also at the same time the SEC schools I mean the SEC schools one in particular I don't say they have been complaining but they're in, they're in this big roster crunch because kids they saw going from round 6 to 20 or 6 to 15 now are coming back they won't be selected likely and are coming back so they have too many kids coming in that they're recruited guys that they thought they were going to they're not going to recruit uh, guys they thought they were going to lose that they're now not going to lose most likely. But then they're going out and signing all these grad students from the Ivy League. You know, they're grabbing the catcher from here, or catcher from there. And so they're kind of like working against what they're saying. Uh, but the net of that is they're going to be even better. So I think college baseball as a whole, these next couple of years, just by the talent that they're going to retain by these guys not going to pro ball, it's going to be the golden years of college baseball. And then moving beyond that, like we were talking about earlier, is it continuing to be the golden age with uh, just making some changes maybe to the to the recruiting, you know, to the calendar, the game season's calendar. Um, and back to that couple points I left off, I mentioned a little bit earlier, but it, at the end of the day, it's about the student athlete. These kids are in college to go to college. And I think it just makes for a much better academic environment to move the calendar back so they can actually get a strong start to their studies. And then the final thing I failed to mention altogether was just the just the physical preparation. Right now they have three or four weeks to fire it back up until they're out there competing on the mound, being expected to go 100 pitches, what have you. And if you move the calendar back a few weeks, it just lets these guys get their bodies in even better shape to go. So I really think you're going to see a lot less injuries, especially the nagging ones that usually strike early or the ones that, you know, get you early at the Tommy John's early season. Cause I think this year we only lost one pitcher uh, in early in the draft. You know, usually we have six, seven, 10 guys, uh, usually college arms go down and then it makes for a, a, I don't know, a thinner draft this year. There's no thin. These guys started the season strong. They left it strong. Um, and nobody broke down, but I think moving forward, if you can give them a little extra ramp up time, uh, you're going to see a healthier college baseball as well. David, We've said so many times, this is Pandora's box. There's so many things yet to come. I still don't think we can grasp everything that will come from all these changes. But give me some examples of some things that coaches are grappling with uh, 
because of the pandemic, because of the changes to the draft, and really going forward, because this isn't just something that affects rosters for 2021. It it has a ripple effect for 2022 and 2023 and 24. Give me some difficulties maybe that coaches and colleges are struggling with that don't get talked about a lot. I think the big one, and we've talked about this a little bit, but I don't think it's made to be such a big deal, but just the, the transfer exemption, uh, the one-time transfer exemption, like right now they want it to alleviate the, the rosters, you know, so against flexibility in the rosters because you only get 11.7 scholarships. Some schools are probably locked into 14, 15, 16. They don't want to set the kids free um, to become more or less free agents. Who are they going to cut? So I think that's the biggest dilemma facing college coaches right now is, is let's get past this draft, see who we lose, and then we can really lock down a roster. Um, and then the next one uh, is just the recruiting calendar right now. They're all college coaches right now. They're at home till July 31st. They can't leave campus. They can't recruit. They can watch video. They can watch live stream. They can get stats and data, uh, what have you, but they can't physically go out and see players. So I think that's really creating, uh, putting them in an even tougher spot where they can't, they can't recruit right now, but they're on a level playing field. So at the end of the day, all in the same boat. Um, so it'll, it'll all work out the same for, you know, in the end. But uh, I think those are the two biggies that maybe they're talking about a little bit, but uh, certainly not uh, to the extent that they're affecting those college coaches on an everyday basis. David, I'm thinking of a hypothetical for Vanderbilt next year. And again, lots to come with the draft, but you looking at a potential rotation next year of Rocker, Leiter, Hickman, with Tyler Brown potentially closing, Ethan Smith in there somewhere, maybe the midweek, maybe as a setup guy. You got Schultz and Laboki and Doolin and all those freshmen that threw so well for them this year. Best case scenario with that pitching staff, where does that rank among the all-time greats in college baseball? Oh, man, that's got to be up there if they all live up to their uh, potential. That's certainly just an absolutely dominating staff. Um, I don't really have from uh, you know from A to Z every year, but uh, that's got to be right up there with uh, with any of the good ones, any of the great ones. Let's shift gears for a second before we end the podcast. Of course, everybody's got their eyes on Major League Baseball. The owners, the players, can't seem to get out of their own way. You've had proposals that have gone back and forth, and. I think, frankly, inconsistencies in both sides and their position at times. Where do you think this is headed with MLB? Is there a season? If there is a season, how long do they go? I think there has to be a season. I just think the ramifications if there's no season are just too dire. I mean, neither side can can weather that financial hit, I wouldn't think. Um, but I kind of like the – and I know, like you said, they're going back and forth. They're just doing a lot of – posturing right now hey if you do this we're going to do this yada 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 but i really am intrigued by the the short season that the the owners just recently uh they didn't propose it but they said hey this is in our back pocket we could say this but i like the 50 60 game basically sprint to a playoff because i think that's a playoff in itself um and then an extended playoff i mean i just think that's probably the biggest chance uh, you know, for them, for not only the owners to make the most money, but for the players to get paid the most money. And I think that's really what this is about is the owners not losing a bunch of money and the players making as much as they can, which I get it. I get, I get the financial side um, of that. So 
Um, I, I really like that. I know it hasn't been proposed yet, but I don't think the owners are going to go for a long season that goes into November, December. I just don't think that makes sense because that may make sense for this year, but you're still starting in early March, mid-February spring training next year, and that's not much of a rest for anybody. And yeah, their workloads are going to be a lot less in this shortened season, but I just, I just think you need to end the regular season where a normal regular season would end as well as the playoffs. Uh, they're talking about them pandemic coming, COVID coming back in the fall. I mean, again, we don't know that, but if, if that's true, if that does happen, um, then that puts all that at a risk when the flu really gets bad there in November and December. So I don't know. I'm, I know I'm going around and around, but my favorite one, again, is just the shortened 50, 60 game regular season, make it a sprint. That's going to have everybody's interest because every, every game they play is going to have three times the weight of 162 game season. And that leads you into an extended playoffs with more teams. I just think that sounds like a lot of fun from a fan standpoint, which I am. Oh, I think it would be fascinating. I don't know that I like it. I just think that so many things can happen in shorter sample sizes, but man, you talk about a truth serum in some ways in terms of how decisions are made and being read, able to read through what maybe managers are thinking and who they're confident in and who they're not. But the other thing that'll be interesting if they do it this year, what you have is that the three batter minimum that goes into effect for this year. Correct. Yes. Yep. I mean, what in the world is bullpen management going to look like? It fits a 50 to 60 game season and you have that on top of things. Oh, no doubt. And I think, I, and I haven't heard any of this lately, but I know when they are talking about a longer season, they're talking about, expanded rosters maybe have 28 guys on the major league roster active instead of the 25 uh, with a taxi squad you know things like that uh, but I'm not sure what we you know where the new proposal out there but yeah it could be absolutely fascinating uh, <laughs> the pitching matchups and and how that all plays out last thing here the thing that lurks in the background of all this is the collective bargaining agreement that will be up at the end of the 2021 season. I can't help but think, and especially if they don't play, that there is going to be a lot of bitterness between the two parties going into that. Uh, I think it's gathering momentum for that right now as we speak. Maybe they find a happy medium where everybody is fine and they move on and there are no lingering hurt feelings, but I would bet against that given the history of baseball. So with that said, with the CBA lurking at the end of 2021, what hazards do you see with that? How will that affect negotiating? How will that affect the draft? Uh, I mean, I, I just see so many things on the horizon that could change in that agreement if they don't get something settled harmoniously in the next couple of weeks yes without a doubt and as, as far as how it affects the, the draft i'd say it's a foregone conclusion but I, I think the draft will be shorter in the future you know i know i know next year um they're they're already maximum i just think that's going to become somewhere in there there's no reason for 40 rounds there's I'm a huge, obviously, I'm a huge college baseball fan, just a huge fan of baseball in general, but there's not 40 rounds of talent, 1,200 picks that need to go and start their professional baseball career. There's just not. There's not There's not a 1,000 guys that are deserving of a, a six-figure signing bonus. I mean, again, not against the player to get all the money they can make, not against high signing bonuses at all, um, not against free agency, but I, there's just not 
that much talent to justify a six-figure bonus. So I definitely think the rounds will come down. I hope they take my plan. I, I proposed this back in the uh, winter, uh, back in December. I kind of came out for uh, the new plan for the new CBA for the draft. And part of the proposal was lower signing bonuses, but for every dollar you loan, lo- lower the signing bonus, the total pool for all the clubs, uh, put that money into bigger salaries for these players. So instead of paying them $1,200 a month or, you know, around six, $8,000 per year, make, make it a, uh, you know, make it a decent salary, make them make 30, $40,000 per year, pay them twice a month. Uh, they already have full season health benefits. So that, that goes unaffected, but unaffected, but give them a real salary that they can use throughout the year. So they don't have to take three, four jobs in the off season while they're trying to prepare for spring training and get bigger, faster and stronger, you know, treat them, treat them like they have a real job, give them a real job that's year round with a salary. So I've been, I've long been a proponent for more salary for these kids and less signing bonuses. Um, now with all that said, that really goes against agents and agents run the players association um, because agents want big signing bonuses because that's how they make their three, four, 5% commission. They don't make commission off a salary, um, you know, a, a, a standard salary. They make, commission off major league contracts and, you know, the 10 million guys, $10 million uh, that a guy does sign for in that regard when they're a free agent, things like that. But on a minor league contract, they wouldn't make any commission. So they're not going to be in favor of more salary, less signing bonus. I, I get that. But I think ultimately that's probably the best thing for the player, the best thing, um, you know, to make them prepare to be the most prepared to stay the best in shape. The best thing to motivate them is, is a, is a bigger salary. Yeah. I like your idea because I just don't think it makes sense when you just can't as a minor leaguer earn a living and, and have anything left at the end of things. When you make what those guys make, most of them don't have a signing bonus. that's going to stick around for a long time. It just seems to me like, you've got to have one foot in that career and the other foot in trying to survive. And I wonder how many players have just given up and left baseball altogether just because the, the unknown of, Hey, will I ever make it? And if not, you know, what happens if I'm 28 and I've I've never made above 20 grand in my life? Um, I just think it, it makes too much sense for player development on the whole. Uh, and, And I'm with you. I think MLB should look, God knows, they can afford to do it. I just think that plan that you were throwing out there makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I know in the past five, six years, the the teams that seem to be ahead of the others in player development, they put a lot more money into the nutrition, like the Dodgers. They've really emphasized nutrition in their players, uh, just developing the whole player and just not the, the physical tools. So I think that's, um, you know, and I just point out the Dodgers, but there's other clubs that have done that and more that are doing that on a daily basis, just better spreads after after games or before games to you know just feed their players better so they're putting it all together and they're spending a lot more money in player development i just think you just need to spend more money on those guys year round when they're not at your not your field or your facility david this has been a terrific podcast it has been very insightful i think you guys at d1 baseball do as good a job at covering a sport as any journalistic agency does covering any sport uh, as far as I can see tell people about what you guys have coming up on your podcast with your written content uh, and anything else that you might be involved in that you'd like to promote and of course give out your twitter handle too if you don't mind please 
Sure. Um, I've, uh, again, as, as we talked about before, I, I work for both Prep Baseball Report and Division D1Baseball.com. And Prep Baseball Report, you know, their their showcases, their events, their tournaments throughout the summer uh, in each state. And so with that, we have our draft coverage coming up with D1 Baseball. The, the owner of D1 Baseball is the Cast, but this year ESPN is covering the draft as well. So Kyle will be on that. Uh, we're providing the, the scouting reports for that in addition to uh, one of the writers they have on their staff uh, that has done so as well. So a lot of the stuff you'll see coming on ESPN is is part of Prep Baseball Report, the D1 package with Kendall Rogers and Aaron Fitt. So uh, as far as on the website, the D1 website, we're going to post our top uh, 51 through 100 top college prospects tomorrow and then numbers 1 through 50 on Friday. And that'll run all over, you know, run through the weekend. We have a mock draft come out on Monday, and then the draft is on Wednesday. David, thank you so much for joining us today, and hopefully we will do this again at some point. Sounds great to me. Thank you, Chris. He is David Seifert of D1 Baseball. I'm Chris Lee, the host of the Bandy Sports Podcast.